it on? Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're moving on through Mark. And I don't know how far I'll get to Mark through Mark, but we'll just continue trucking on because I want to preach Christ as much as I possibly can. And... Uh, We've gone from the doctrine of forgiveness being taught by Christ. That's what happened with the story of the paralytic. We spent a couple weeks on that, breaking it down. Uh, but it all boiled down to Jesus was teaching there that he had the authority to forgive sins. The power to forgive sins. The Son of Man. I love when we get to those places where Christ himself is teaching Christology and teaching us about Christ. And we saw a lot of these uh, statements here recently where Christ says, uh, gives us a statement of faith about himself. The Son of Man, there's another one. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. That's a good, that's a good part of our Christology. So we're going from the doctrine of forgiveness being taught by the Lord, to it being practiced in real time in the next narrative where he encounters a sinner, a notable sinner, forgives them and sends them home in the story of the paralytic. And then in the very next story, this very next narrative, he encounters a sinner and shows us what that forgiveness looks like in reality as that sinner begins to follow him and other sinners just like him. So we're going from doctrine to practice. And I think we've already saw that with repentance. He preached, for, he preached repentance everywhere. And then what happens in the very next narrative? Peter and Andrew, James and John, follow me. What does repentance look like? Right there. We, he learn, we learn Repentance, here we're learning about the doctrine of forgiveness even more fully as it's practically demonstrated by Christ. Uh, in the story here before us and become central to our understanding. So uh, let's read the story. Starting in verse 13. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And, above and beyond his teaching, we assume that, as he's, that this teaching in, in the 13th verse is continuing, to, uh, continuing in the same line of teaching he just got done. He was teaching, preaching repentance before, and now he's teaching forgiveness. Uh, and there's a certain cycle, and I'm getting ahead of myself. As, as you deal with the uh, Gospels here, as he unfolds this revelation of, Christ, of himself to the world. And, above and beyond the teaching he was just doing, and he passed by and saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. 
And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, let me ask you something. What was right after the narrative of Peter getting called? He went into Peter's house. What's after the narrative of Levi getting called? He goes into Peter's or Levi's house. Are you seeing the pattern? All right. And as he sat at meat, as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans. Why? Because he was a publican, not a Republican. That would have been worse, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they, the publicans and sinners, followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw, saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he says unto them, I don't know if that them is directly to the scribes and Pharisees or that them was to the disciples. It's not clear. But he said unto them, They that are whole, that's healthy, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thus is the reading of God's word as many say after reading so I want to just like I've done each time just march through this text all right the crescendo is of course that last verse verse 17 but let's get there let's 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 see what the controversy is so first consider in verse 13 uh how this narrative leads again to the narrative of forgiveness leads again to sinners being sought. Prior to this, he sought out fishermen, noble in their own right. But on the heels of his teaching about his authority to forgive, he digs a little deeper to the less noble in this progressive revelation of himself. And there, like I said a second ago, there's an increasing rhythm to his revelation that's captured here in the 13th verse. I'm not going to say a lot about this verse just because it's, it's a transitional. But we see the term again, and he went forth again by the seaside. And we almost see to where he was preaching in the, in, on the seaside and he was preaching in the, in, the, in the mountains as well when we compare scripture with scripture and it came in and condensed and there's, there he is in the synagogue and there he is in the city in the, cent, in the center of Judaism and now he's gone back out to the perimeter. He's taught and he's taught something very specific and he's gone back out to the perimeter and what's he doing? He's finding lost sheep. He's finding the ones that went astray. Amen. I, I think we can, I think we can uh, uh, safely say that. And there is the imperfect verbs tell us that the crowd kept coming and he kept teaching them as he went back out to the perimeter. He is the shepherd seeking lost sheep. Last time he went by the seaside, he was seeking lost sheep. Found Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now he's back out to the seaside seeking lost sheep. So he finds Levi. 
So that's all we really have to say about the 13th verse as it's transitional to the story, transitioning to the teaching of forgiveness to the demonstration of forgiveness. And so we go from the general description of Christ leaving the 99 uh, to seek the lost sheep as a matter of course to him finding a specific sheep, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Comparing scripture with scripture, we know that Levi was a publican, which was what? He was a tax collector. Uh, the Beatles had a song in the 60s, Tax Man. <laughs> uh, I don't think the tax man's any more liked today, even though the IRS gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, than it was then. But in fact, I would say that back then it was even more hated and there for a specific reason. So who is this sinner? He's Levi. I don't want to get into the minutia of names and stuff like that, but this is Matthew, right? Compare Luke and... and uh, uh, and uh, Matthew and Mark, the same account. Matthew says, it's me. <laughs> it's Matthew. He, I was the one sitting at the receipt of custom, and that's, that's my story. Um, so he's the one, Matthew is the one that penned the Gospel of Matthew, according to tradition. Uh, probably the scribe, and it was probably the general message of all the apostles, Matthew was. And all, all the... And he was a tax collector. Uh, Luke 5.27 tells us that he was a tax collector. Luke also calls him Levi, uh, at least in this point. And so who were the tax collectors? Well, the tax collectors have to be seen in the light of, con of the historical context. The Jews were ruled and therefore oppressed by Rome. All right? So, if you want tax collectors represented Roman tribute being taken from the Jews to give to Rome. That's what, that was their business that they were doing. If you want to think of a parallel in our own time, think of the uh, Jewish capos in the Holocaust. What were the Jewish capos? Well, they were... Jewish police that oppressed the Jewish people in the Jewish ghettos under Nazi rule. Were the capos liked by the other Jews? No. That's kind of what we have with the publicans, the tax collectors. They were hated, they were despised, and they were considered great sinners. And generally they were. Why? Because they were pushed to the fringes. They were no longer part of the Jewish community. They were outside of that, even though they were Jews. And we often find, uh, find publicans and sinners, publicans and harlots, and even Jesus Christ himself would use those descriptions. So they were known as great sinners, and they generally were. They were commonly, openly, commonly and openly thieves. Everybody knew that not only were they taking Roman tribute, but they were also taking their own cut as well above and beyond that. They overtaxed the people for the purposes of personal gain. Think about the story of Zacchaeus, right? He says, I restore everything that I took, <laughs> and I'll give fourfold if I took it unjustly. 
They were notoriously wicked. They spent their time in gluttony, in drunkenness, and fornication. Hence the idea of, of I want to say Republicans, publicans and harlots. That was the general description. And it is so even here. It's something very interesting that happens here in Mark. He is given the name of his father. Now, granted, this name, Alphaeus, it could have been a name that others had, but he's here called the son of Alphaeus, and there's only one other place that he is referred to as such, and it possibly makes him brother of James the Less, who was repeatedly called the son of Alphaeus. And even when listed along with Matthew, when they list the disciples, you will find James called the son of Alphaeus and not Levi or Matthew. And this might actually tell us something a little bit more about the condition of Levi. Levi perhaps was so despised by the family and community for his, uh, for his being the tax collector that he was uh, driven even from them. James the Less being the only recognized son. I don't know, that's all speculation, but John Gill said this, it is thought by some probable that he was a loose, extravagant young man, so might de depart from his father's family and enter into the scandalous employment of a publican. And herein went contrary to his father's will, Cleophas or Alphaeus, who was the husband and s of the sister of Mary, the mother of our Lord. So might maybe even a cousin of our Lord him and James. I don't know. That's just me speculating about him being the son of Alphaeus. Now, that's not really all that important. Uh, well, I mean, it might be, but it's fun to speculate about scriptures. But let's talk about what Christ did. Christ comes to the money changers. He calls Matthew. What we have here is what we've been talking about a lot lately. Grace. Amen? Matthew wasn't seeking Christ. Christ was seeking him. And he, he comes to the money changers, uh, and there Matthew found the greatest of treasures, and he left all and he followed him. And just we see the same kind of description is happening here that's happening with, that happened already with Peter, Andrew, and John. Uh, but this time it's a notably notorious sinner that is the subject of grace. And I want to say this, Christ delights in saving sinners. Really bad sinners. I'll, one of the, if you ever get a chance to read um, a little book from John Bunyan called "The Jerusalem Sinner Saved," uh, and he says God, he says God delights more and more and more and above all to save the Jerusalem sinners because who were the Jerusalem sinners? They're the ones that put them on the cross and spit on them and mocked them. And he says, "Go ye into go ye into all the world, but start at." That was uh, that was uh, the the. Uh, point of John Bunyan's The Jerusalem Sinner Saved book, and if you ever get a chance to read that little book, it is very, very good. Um, but he was made a new creature. So we saw here, we, we have him here called Levi, but we also know that he goes by the name of Matthew, and in fact, for the most part, he was called Matthew by everyone after. So even in these books where he's called Levi in the context, Luke and Mark, he was later listed as a disciple under the name Matthew. So we get the idea that most likely, um, uh, most likely Jesus Christ gave him a change of name. Now what is the name Levi? Well, 
we know Levi as the name of one of the one of the twelve patriarchs. Um, he was named Levi because when his mother Leah gave him gave birth to him, she says, "Ah, oh, she named him Levi, which means obligated or attached." Uh, it says, it "says Therefore, my husband will be obligated to me since I've borne him three sons." Uh, is what she said. So the name itself means attached or obligated, and it it it's a very fitting name for someone who is under the law. We are under the judgment of the law. We are under the obligation of the law because we are under the judgment of the law. We are under that as a as a curse. What does the word the name Matthew mean? It means gift. Amen. We go from obligation to gift. If you're just just kind of looking at the at the meaning of the names, you often find some things there. Uh, the gift of grace, the gift of the, uh, but all of it is kind of coalesces to this idea that God is being gracious unto him, and therefore he took the name, or was given the name, Matthew. So I said a second ago that the same dynamic, so when we're reading the conversion of Levi, it reads just like the conversion of the other disciples. There is no certain way of salvation for some and a certain way of salvation for others. What we have here is the terms of grace. Christ saw him. Before Matthew ever saw Christ, Christ saw him. Before Christ ever, ever spoke to, or Levi ever spoke to Christ, Christ called him. And he gave the gospel imperative to him to follow, just as he did the others to become his pupil. Uh, this is all about grace. We don't need to cover that ground again. We've already talked about it. Gill, again, noting, uh, I, th- I love this quote here from John Gill, where he talks about Matthew was stationary. It was Christ that was dynamic. <laughs> Christ is, is, the, um, is the figure uh, here that is doing the monergistic work, where he says, Levi took no notice of him inquired not about him and had no thought of leaving his employee and going after him, but Christ knew him. Christ found him in his sin and saved him. The sinner is sought and the sinner is saved. This is just all part of this context. It's leading us to what Christ has to say in verse 17. Uh, The description, again, is the same. The calling of Christ is effectual. Christ called, and he followed. That's what happened to me, eventually. I heard the gospel many a days before I was saved. But But Christ called me, opened up my heart, and I came to him. This is my story. This is your story if you're saved here. And he left everything. Same language as Peter. Same language as John. Now the same language of Levi. And he began following Christ. Then we see from there, the saved sinner enters into an abiding fellowship. There's no difference between what happened with Peter. A more noble profession. Probably not a bad guy, Peter. You you're not surprised when Peter gets saved, even though he runs the mouth off a little bit. Uh, pro- pro- probably uh, cusses like a sailor kind of thing, but he's, he's a respected person in the community. Not so with him, but we see the same dynamic. 
what does Christ do? He enters into his home. An abiding fellowship. Totally saved, we might say that. He's, uh, not, not, not. Uh, he's, he's, he's entering into all parts of the life of Levi, the life of Matthew. And what happens there? Other sinners are coming. I could imagine some of them saying, well, that could happen to Matt. If that can happen to Levi, I could come to him too. And it came to pass, it says, that Jesus sat at meat in his house. Many publicans and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many, and they followed him. There is a shift here from the teaching of Christ as the forgiver of sins to the purposeful gathering of sinners. He that forgives sins is among sinners forgiving. <laughs> Christ went into the house and Matthew of Matthew, and despite everything, it says he reclined with him. That, that, word, uh, that word sat is just, we got, we got our English acronyms here. We picture someone at a table and there's chairs. And, and uh, no, they, they would generally sit on the floor reclining on pillows. And they were reclining together. Jesus reclining, eating with sinners. Christ enters and dines in the houses of his followers. Christ is not just my God here in the church building on Sunday, but he is my God in my home and everywhere else. Matthew could not keep Christ to himself. Levi, it says in Luke 5, 29, and Levi made a great feast. Why was he there? He says, Lord, come. Come to my house, I will make a feast for you. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with him, according to Luke. So this wasn't, you're, you're, you're going to hear things like this. And I want, I want to tell you there's a ditch on both sides that we need to avoid here. This was not Christ loving the people on the margins. This is about Christ forgiving a particular sinner. And forgiving other sinners that were just as just like that sinner that had repented and 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 followed him. So you'll hear sometimes sometimes a lot on Twitter. Oh, Christ just loved the margins. He loved the people that were that that, that were that were out there on the margins, and therefore uh, he 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 wants those people. No, he wants to forgive sinners. He wants to save sinners. He wants to work repentance in them. They, he wants them following him. So this isn't about Christ loving the margins. It's about Christ loving sinners and saving them. Amen? So a lot of the, re a lot of the rhetoric today about Christ, uh, well, if he was here, he'd be with, he would be going into this place and that place. And yeah, it may be true, but he would be calling to repentance and working, working to forgiveness of sins. So we, we need to be very careful about the language that some people want to wrap around this is not necessarily, is not necessarily well, it's more Marxist language than it is Christian. Uh, good, uh, good is ever diffuse of itself, uh, says the pulpit commentary. Christian love prompts those that have experienced the love of Christ to draw others to the same fountain of mercy. 
They did so because they too believed on, why were they all there? Were they there just having a party and sinning and doing their regular thing? They were there because Jesus was there and they were following him. That's what the text says. They too believed. They too followed in, in the imperfect sense. They were continuing to follow him. This is not, not as some say, Christ fellowshipping in sin. Well, Christ would be, with the, would, be, would be down there sinning with them. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. He would be there as their Lord, and they would be following him. That's a, we, we miss the point because we want to justify this wickedness or that wickedness in our life, and that's what our culture is doing with Jesus. He's not fellowshipping in sin, but he's receiving sinners. Amen? Note the difference. He's, the, he's receiving those who repent and those who freely have, those freely have fellowship with him and they follow him. This here is a microcosm for also what the church is. Look what the text says. It says, and the publicans and sinners also together with Jesus and his disciples. So this is to be a microcosm of the church. What are we here for? We're here to receive sinners. Amen? We're here to recline with sinners. Not in their sin, but in reconciling them with God. So the disciples reclined as well. God saving, but here's the point, and I'm going to get to the, I'm going to try to get somewhere in the next five minutes. But here's the point. Christ saving sinners is now going to become a controversy. Because we have another side of this coin. We have the side of the people who look at this and say, well, see, Christ just, he loved people in their sins and, and he wanted to be with people in their sins. No, he, and, and, and they're, and they're mist- but we also have the self-righteous crowd today. It's there. Are notorious sinners really welcome in churches? <laughs> Are we really, so it becomes a controversy. It says, and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with publicans and sinners, they said unto the disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? The scribes in the last narrative are now joined by the Pharisees, although some would read this scribes of the Pharisees, but here we have scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, But we know what scribes are. We talked about specifically what scribes are, but what, what are Pharisees? Now, we, have, we use the word Pharisee as a pejorative now. We, we use it as an insult. If someone is acting self-righteous and haughty and proud, what do we call them? Pharisee. So we use it as a pejorative today. But that wasn't so then. When you said the word Pharisee, you were talking about a really good person. The word Pharisee itself is an Aramaic word that means separate. Paras, separate. And that what, it, what it describes, and, and we really see the beginning of the Pharisaic movement uh, in the book of Nehemiah. Let's separate from all this sin. Let's devote ourselves to God. And out of that came the Pharisaic movement, the Pharisees. Let us, let us be separate from sin. And do you know what they were? They were people that took the word of God seriously. Amen. I hope you and I are people who take the word of God seriously. I hope we're a little bit like the Pharisees in that aspect. And they took it strictly. Paul says of himself in Acts 26.5, he says, According to the strictest sect, I lived a Pharisee. 
They were strict. You tithe of mint, anise, and cumin. What does that mean? They were getting the, they were they were wanting to be so obedient to the law that they got the smallest herbs that they could and chopped up ten percent of it and made sure they weighed it out and brought it to the Lord. They wanted to be obedient. You all want to be obedient? <laughs> we're talking about good people here. They were committed to being separate from sin and applying the word of God to all areas of their life. The self-righteous pejorative was later well-earned by them as they had the sinful tendency of self-justification. Jesus spoke a parable to unto certain ones that wanted to justify themselves. And he told about the Pharisee coming, I thank God I'm not like others, and you know, all that. So they, la they later earned that pejorative, and they rightly earned that pejorative, earning the very wrath of Christ as he talked about, you are so obedient in the matter. You're going about to establish your own righteousness, and you miss the righteousness of God, as Paul would later say. So we're introduced to this controversy by the Pharisees and the scribes. The temporal clause introduces the controversy after seeing him eat. And by the way, this isn't the only controversy. Apparently, they should have been fasting at this point, and that's going to come up later. Uh, because even the disciples of John, we'll talk about this next week, even the, John the Baptist still had disciples who were not quite listening to what John was saying. And they said, well, we're fasting, this time for fasting, and he's in there feasting. So this isn't the only controversy, but this is the most important one, or at least the, uh, as far as what we're talking about today. So after seeing him eat, they began to say in the imperfect, we get this idea, they began to say this repeatedly. Hey, he's eating with sinners. Look, look at this. Look, he's eating with sinners. Hey, hey, they were just getting around and telling people, do you know what Jesus is in there doing? He's eating with sinners. Terrible people. This comes up again and again. Remember the harlot coming in, washing Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping him with her hair, things of that nature. If she, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. They, 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 they think this is he was doing something that was defiling his entire ministry, whatever, and it challenged the authorities that they wanted to challenge. So they were repeating it before the matter was about forgiveness and authority, but now it's about reconciliation. Who were these people sitting, sitting with Christ but reconciled people? And their attacks were directed towards the church. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against the disciples, his disciples, Luke 5.30. You know, there's always pressure on a church not to receive sinners. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> you don't believe it? I mean, uh, listen, I've been in some self-righteous churches where I didn't even feel like I was welcome because of the way I was dressed, the way I looked. And I was dressed like this. <laughs> they got standards. And if you didn't fit their standards, then you're not welcome. I'm telling you, I mean, both sides of these coins, <laughs> of the coin, there's a ditch on both sides of this. There's always pressure on the church not to receive sinners. Not only receive people that look a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way, and if they're not, they better they better get in line really, really quick, or they're not welcome. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're missing the objection. They ha they have this content. What what were they saying? The, the, this content clause. They said, 
in verse 16, how is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? And now, not getting into the minutia of Greek and things like that, uh, this, could, this, could, this could be either a question or an exclamation. Why? It could be asking, why? Why is he eating with sinners? And repeatedly asking the question, casting doubt on the cleanness of his ministry in the community. <laughs> you see, how is it that he, why is he in there doing that? If he's such a good teacher, if he's such a, you know, why is, would he be doing that? Repeatedly questioning the ministry. Or it could be an explanation. What? He eats with tax collectors? He eats with sinners? And the dramatic value of invoking strong feelings in people. Either way, the religious leaders have declared there was no place for sinners and Christ taking a place among them was to be censured. This was proof to them that he was not either a good man, a holy man, or a knowledgeable man. As we've seen in other places where we have the same dynamic. It's also later added the question of his consumption. Like I said, they're not only going to question this, they're going to question why he's not fasting, but we'll deal with that next week. Uh, to this, after he had heard, and I don't know if he answers them directly or indirectly, but this is the point that we want to get to. Verse 17. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Now, I don't often talk about variants in the scripture, but we have a little word at the end of this verse that some older manuscripts does not contain, and I want to defend it. The word repentance. Some modern translations do not have it. They'll just have it ending by saying, He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that verse will stop there. I want to defend this reading in front of us just for a second. And not to, the, not to the detriment of those that do honest scholarship, but I want to defend the word repentance. First, when you read in Luke 5.32, it's fully attested there. Same description, Christ did say repentance. Where Luke 5.32, he says, called sinners to repentance. So it is part of this. And it's partially in manuscript evidence, also contained in Matthew in the same place, Matthew 9.13. Secondly, it's fully supported by the context. It fits Christ's parable that defines sin as sickness in need of healing, in need of a change. It is the context of submitting to him as Lord, following him. It deals with all sinners as their Lord. And it is in the broader context of forgiveness of sins and the administration of mercy, whereby Luke continues by, or Matthew continues on by saying, uh, learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. So it also, third point, it fits grammatically. The verbal noun, we call it an infinitive, to call, is balanced on both of this. I came not to call the righteous, but 
sinners. Now that infinitive there, to call, needs a compliment. Now, I'm not going to explain in English what a compliment is, but uh, what, 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 we need, what we need here, to, let me ask you a question, uh, balancing both sides of this. I came not to call the righteous to what? But to call sinners to what? Whatever answers that question what is why you need a compliment here. And that compliment, according to Luke, is repentance. So I'm not a bit worried about the reading here, or, or, or a bit, I believe, wholeheartedly, this is a story about repentance, and that is what Christ said. And by the way, it's also what he said in other contexts that are similar. Luke 15, 7, where he says, where they were mad about, about uh, Christ eating with sinners, and he gave the three parables of Luke 15, and what did he say they, say they meant? Luke 15, 7, there is rejoicing in the presence of God when sinners come through, what's the word? Repentance. And by the way, it's what Christ described was actually happening with the publicans and harlots. Matthew 21, 32, they repented and you didn't when he gave the parable of the two sons. One son, one, one son was supposed to go. Uh, said I'd go and didn't and the other son said he wouldn't go and did and he says that's the difference between you Pharisees and these publicans and harlots they repented alright so that's me defending the reading here alright we have a reading I believe it's a good reading I believe it's a trustworthy reading but sinners to repentance now let's just get to what it says I'm sorry I'm keeping you long I just got Three or three minutes, I promise. This text does not neatly fit in any man-centered theology. It does not fit into the ultra-separatist who demand strict adherence to man-made standards as a condition of fellowship in the church. Nor does it fit the laissez-faire antinomianism, lawlessness of people today that say that the fellowship of Christ does not recognize the reality of sin and therefore the need of repentance and forgiveness and that what Christ does everywhere he goes is he's just affirming people's sin. But what does the text say? The tendency of all religion is toward one of these other ditches. Here Christ defines his mission. What did he come for? And in the defining of that mission, he eschews the fundamentalist and the liberal. He corrects them both. He did not come to condemn. He did not come to affirm. He came to give mercy. Now thank you for making me sing that song today because that's where we're at here. He came to give healing from sinfulness. In the eyes of Christ and in truth, the sinner is sick. All right? Don't go around saying there's nothing wrong with you. That's what the world is saying. 
There's nothing wrong with you. You have no sin. Sin don't exist. You're okay. Just as I am without one plea, you know. No. The sinner is sick. And the sinner needs care. Amen? I don't always like it when the doctor says there's something wrong with me. Amen. But do you know what I need? I need the doctor to tell me there's something wrong with you and you need healing. Not affirmation and on the other side of the coin, not condemnation. The pulpit commentary says, and the physician is not infected by the disease of the patient, but rather overcomes it and drives it from him. So it is no disgrace, but rather an honor to the physician to associate himself with the sick, and so much more, the greater the sickness. And as we, as the body of Christ, should be associating ourselves wisely with the sick of this world, because there is no other physician that they need other than Christ. They need a merciful physician. He compared these tax collectors and sinners as people who realized their sickness and their need to come to him as their physician. The people who are healthy, or at least believe themselves to be so, which there are none good, don't feel the need to come to Christ. Christ would later say to the Pharisees, you bar the door of heaven to others. You won't go in, but you want to make sure they can't go in either. And I'm afraid there are many that are guilty of that today. This is what the Pharisee could not see in the law, but you know what? They miss, though, Psalm, Psalm 103.3, above all things, uh, uh, among many texts, God heals our sicknesses and forgives our sins. They complained that he gave his compassionate presence to the unworthy, and they would not complain if they were sick and went to the doctor. Matthew quoted Christ as reminding them, of what the law truly taught. Again, I made references where he says right after this in Matthew 9, 13, Go ye and learn what this means. I will have mercy. That's the character of God. The inability of the unwillingness to follow Christ in the care of sinners is itself a breach of the law. No matter how many sacrificial standards we uphold. Here, he came to call the sinners. He came to call them to repentance. Those that believe themselves to be righteous have stopped their ears. They don't want to hear the call themselves. But they sure don't want to see Christ sitting with the people that really need him. Those who know themselves sick, though, those who know themselves sinful are the subject of the call to salvation here in this text. So we've gone from, I have the power to forgive, to I do forgive. And I forgive the worst. And that sitting with Christ that day, now following him and rejoicing in his fellowship, rejoicing in his reconciliation, 
were healed sinners. And standing out complaining about them were people who thought they were healthy. That they don't need anything. And realized, if they would have realized, as Paul would later realize, all my righteousness is dung. <laughs> all that tithe of, of mint that I've cut up, nothing. I'm sick. And I need Christ. And I pray that we could take that message that Christ receives sinners far and wide. Let's go ahead and stand and be dismissed. I kept you a little long, and I apologize about that, but hopefully it's been a blessing to you. Let's, well, I mean, we've been finishing with that chorus, Christ is all I need, so let's do it again.